So last week we started a new series on the Gospel of Mark titled Marked, play on words. And uh, Pastor James showed us the tattoo he has on his calf, the Greek word doulos for servant or slave. And he said, there came a point in my Christian life when I understood that I am fundamentally a servant of Jesus Christ. And that's how I identified myself, and I put a mark on my body. Now, I don't want my daughters getting tattoos, but I am proud to have a pastor who so identifies as a servant of Jesus Christ that he marked it on his body, and I see it lived out all week long. So we're blessed to have uh, Pastor James, and uh, I'm thrilled to be his co-pastor here. God does not want you to remain the same after meeting Jesus Christ. And we are going to be encountering Jesus as we study the Gospel of Mark, which is the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And so every week we want to be asking the question, God, how do you want me to change? How do you want to mark my life? How, how do I need to grow in Christ-likeness? Because there are ambitions that you and I have that are not godly. There are behaviors that we have that are not godly. There are attitudes that we have that are not godly. There are so many things that still need to change in my life. And I want them to change because I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I have come to the absolute conviction that life, according to God's will, is better. That is life to the full. And so I am committed to conforming my life more and more to the life of Jesus Christ. And every time I take a step in that direction, I am better off. So, how does God want to mark your life through this study? We want you to get the most out of it. Certainly show up for church and listen to the sermon, but that's only the first step. In your bulletin, you'll see a half sheet of paper, and on the back side, we list all of the Mark texts that we're going to be preaching on, and we recommend some, uh, a, a portion of Mark for you to read in advance. The more that you are reading the book of Mark, the more you're going to get out of this series. On the front side, you will note a couple of online Bible studies through the book of Mark that we recommend, so you can, if you're really ambitious, you can dig in. And we will have uh, fill-in-the-blanks each week in the bulletin and study notes for you to process after the sermon. Now, it'd be great if you would process those study questions in a journey group. Life is better together. People need you and you need us. And so the journey group directory is going to come out next week. Plan, uh, just plan on that. Plan to be part of a journey group. Um, the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. Uh, we thrive together like coals keeping each other alive. And Journey Group is a primary place that we facilitate Christian community. If you missed the sermons, you can catch up online at clearwater.church or you can download the Clearwater Church app and take us with you as you go. Now, before we get into today's message, I want to do a little visualization. So, imagination. I need you to imagine that you are alive at the time of Christ. So it's a couple thousand years ago. Your clothes are different. And you are living in northern Israel near the Sea of Galilee in a beautiful town called Capernaum. And it overlooks the Sea of Galilee. It's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. 
you're a Jew, and you've grown up in Capernaum. Capernaum is the big town in the region. It's got about 10,000 people. Uh, there is a Roman garrison, and so there are Jews and Gentiles living together. It's also right on the main highway that goes from Damascus all the way down to Egypt. So you get lots of travelers. It's a pretty happening place, beautiful place. And uh, you love it. You've been there your whole life. And now in Jerusalem, there is the temple, and, and they are still making animal sacrifices down there at the temple. And you'll go down there at least once a year, Day of Atonement, you're definitely going to be down there, and maybe a few other times. But most of your religious life centers around the local synagogue. It's kind of like church today. And so every Sabbath finds you at the synagogue, and, and it does this Sabbath. On this Sabbath, you wake up, and you eat your breakfast, and you dress, and you head off to the synagogue, and you assume that you know what's going to take place, you, because it's always the same. You always sing some psalms to the Lord. Somebody gets up and reads from the law or the prophets or the wisdom literature, and then they, they teach on it. They talk about what it means, and then they talk about its significance for today. And that's what you expect, because that's what always happens. But on this particular Sabbath, you walk away both astonished and amazed. Because synagogue didn't go the way it was supposed to go. With that in mind, turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 1, verse 21. We read, And they went into Capernaum. Who's the they? Jesus and his four disciples. There are four disciples at this point in the story. Ultimately, there are 12 who are his uh, core disciples, and then, of course, many hundreds of others who follow him. But right now, in this part of the story, we've only been introduced to Simon and his brother Andrew, and James and his brother John. Uh, and they were fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus said, please leave your nets, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And so apparently they've left the Sea of Galilee, and they head into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So Jesus was recognized as a teacher, and so this local synagogue has invited him to be the teacher for that particular Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching. Why are they astonished? Well, because he is teaching unlike anyone they have ever heard before. And it's not the content of his message that is astounding everyone. It's the manner with which he teaches, his style. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So what you are used to every single Sabbath is somebody who gets up and teaches with derived authority. The authority is in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the wisdom literature. And so the scribes, the teachers, the religious teachers of the day, they would read the text Talk about the meaning of the text. The more educated they were, the more uh, other rabbis they would quote, like Gamaliel, currently alive, or rabbis from uh, the past. 
and, and they would it, it, um, identify the meaning of the text, and then they would say, okay, in light of that, here's, here's how we should live today. And that's, what, that's a derived authority. That's what James and I have. When we get up to preach, we recognize ourselves as having derived authority, not authority in and of ourselves. You don't listen to me because I have any authority. Because I'm a pastor, you, you only listen to me as I correctly uh, explain and preach the Word of God. And so the Bible encourages you to be like Bereans who didn't even listen to the Apostle Paul. Everything Paul said, they went back and examined the Scriptures to make sure it was, in fact, uh, accurate. And so Pastor James and I recognize our authority is derived. The authority is the Word of God. Now, to the degree that we proclaim the Word of God, re-speak God's words, then you need to believe and obey, right? But we have a responsibility of saying, here's what the Bible says, and you should be able to look at that and go, oh, okay, that makes sense. And here's a, an outworking of that today, and you, you ought to be able to link the two and say, yeah, that makes sense. And once you conclude that that's, in fact, what God's will is for you, based on the authority of His Word, you then believe and obey, Right? That's not what Jesus is doing. That's what you expect. You got to the synagogue expecting that kind of teaching, and that's not what Jesus is doing. Instead, he is telling you what to do and what to think as if he has authority in and of himself. We have a great example of this recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. There's a formula repeated in this uh, Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said... But I say to you. So, for example, you have heard that it was said, verse 21 of Matthew 5, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's quoting from the Old Testament, right? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. The law of Moses, Ten Commandments. But I want, I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it said it, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You see that? He, he's not abrogating the Old Testament, but he is speaking as if he has the same authority. Yeah, that's the Word of God, and I'm going to add additional uh, words to it. And this absolutely astonished the people. And I don't think it's a positive astonishment at this point. I think it's incredulous. I think people are offended at his hubris? Who does he think he is? What does he think he speaks for God? There has not been a prophet for 400 years, not since Malachi. That's longer than the United States has been around. So you didn't go to synagogue thinking, oh, I wonder if a prophet's going to show up today. You just, no, no, no. And so I think people are offended at Jesus. They're astonished, but it's not a positive astonished. He's either nuts or he's blasphemous. But this is totally inappropriate. He, who does this guy think he is? But then something happens that begins to cause a lot of people to question, 
whoa, maybe he is sent from God. Maybe he does have God's authority. Verse 23, we read, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. It's another uh, euphemism for demon-possessed, another way to say that. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, I love this because the preaching of the gospel is a threat to the kingdom of Satan. And this demon recognizes it. Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom. And if people hear this and respond, the kingdom of Satan will shrink. The kingdom of God grows, and the kingdom of Satan shrinks. And what was it that Jesus was proclaiming? Pastor James uh, dealt with this last week, just a few verses earlier in verse 15. The teaching of Jesus at this time was summarized as, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is saying, you have an opportunity to exit the kingdom of Satan and enter the kingdom of God. Repent of your sins. Believe the good news that God has finally sent the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the only begotten Son of Jesus. And if you do that, you can enter the kingdom of God and then benefit from the rule of God in your life, which when you're in the kingdom of God, you're in it for eternity. And that is that good news, which is still going forth through the church and through his people, is a direct threat to the kingdom of Satan. Because every time someone repents and believes, the kingdom of God shrinks a person. And Jesus said, you know what? The kingdom of God begins like a little mustard seed, but eventually it'll cover the whole earth. And you and I get the great privilege of preaching the good news. Now, I get to do it from a big stage, but you get to do it in your classes, in the hallway between classes, where you're working on your locker and you're telling somebody about Jesus and what God's done in your life, or with your co-worker at lunchtime or around the water cooler or your neighbor because you've invited him in for some cookies and coffee and you share with him what God has done in your life. And you know what? When you do that, you are a direct threat to the kingdom of darkness. But that's okay. Don't be afraid of that because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We don't shy away from it because we become a target. We take joy in that. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, right? So this demon recognizes the preaching of the gospel as a threat, recognizes the coming of Christ. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now that's a very high Christological statement. This demon-possessed man has supernatural or uh, spiritual insight into who Jesus really is. The Holy One of God is a divine uh, label. And yet, Jesus silences him, which is interesting. Jesus doesn't let him speak. And uh, there are a couple of possible reasons for that. One is, Jesus doesn't want to be uh, named even accurately by a demon. I don't, I don't want uh, who I am to be uh, bolstered by you know, demonic testimony. Number two, 
uh, might be the messianic secret, which is very prevalent in Mark, Jesus seems to slowly reveal who he is. And he often tells people who are healed, don't, don't tell anybody about your healing. Just be private about it. And uh, he, he slowly reveals who he is, and it was too early. That could be it. And it's, uh, it's very possibly that he wasn't wanting to give this demon airtime. This, this was not open mic time in the synagogue, right? Uh, this guy jumps up and tries to disrupt what's going on. He's disrupting the church service. He's disrupting the preaching of the gospel because things are getting uh, dangerously out of his control, and Jesus shuts him down. Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. They were astonished. Now they are amazed. Now there were exorcists roaming around at this time. And we have some knowledge of what they did because of some historical record. But none of them were saying, come out of him based on their authority. There, was, there were uh, incantations, and there was a, a whole process, and it might or it might not work. And so the people recognized in what Jesus did uh, something unique and unknown of. He commands the evil spirit, and they obey him. What does this mean? Well, maybe this man does have authority from God. If the evil spirits have to obey him, who's greater than Satan? God. Maybe Jesus does, in fact, have God's authority. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So this exorcism, this display of Christ's authority, demands an explanation. And the people are trying to figure out what's the, what's the explanation for the fact that the demon had to do what Jesus said. Could it be that he, in fact, is a, uh, possesses the authority of God? And if he does, well, then we probably should listen to him, right? Now, when I was younger, I thought, you witness a miracle, you will, of course, have faith, Right? Witness, an, witness a miracle and you will absolutely believe in God and you're going to become a Christian and you're going to want to live your life uh, submitted to him. And that is not correct. That was naive. In fact, I, I should have known it because Jesus tells us that some hearts are so hardened that even if someone were to come back from the dead and preach the gospel, they would not believe because the truth that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and has all authority so threatens some hearts that they will close their eyes to the truth. The religious leaders in Jesus' day never denied. I find this very interesting. They did not deny that Jesus cast out demons. They didn't deny that he healed people. They did not deny that he was a miracle worker. He had performed way too many miracles that had been seen by way too many people for them to deny it and uh, get away with it. So what did they do? They reinterpreted it. Jesus casts out demons by the power of Satan. It's not God's power that is on Jesus. It's Satan's power. And Jesus, of course, pointed out the absurdity of that. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
Why would Satan cast out Satan? No, you are just, uh, you're just trying to avoid the logical conclusion, which is, I have bound the strong man, and now I'm pillaging his home. Of course, Jesus is the Son of God, who possesses the authority and the power of God, and Satan is no match for him. But the religious leaders were trying to reinterpret what was really going on. And that's when Jesus made that very uh, serious threat in which he said, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the one sin that will not be forgiven. Do not attribute the work of God to Satan. That's a very dangerous thing to do. Well, there were a lot of people trying to figure out what is this? And at once his fame spread everywhere through all the, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. People began to talk. And I'll tell you, everyone who witnessed the miracle had to come to a decision. They had to answer the question, what is this? Or rather, who is this? And everybody who heard about that miracle had to answer that question. And you and I have to answer that question 2,000 years later because we're reading about it. And we're hearing about it. And, and you have to answer that question for yourself. What is this? Who is this? Does Jesus have the authority of God? Should I listen to him? Can he tell me what to do and believe? Verse 29, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So, Simon and Andrew uh, lived in Capernaum. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Now, the first thing I thought of it was, well, Simon lives with his mother-in-law. <laughs> I wonder how that dynamic was. And Sabrina and I saw the supposed house. It was pretty small. So, he was really living with his mother-in-law. <laughs> she had a fever. And immediately, they told Jesus about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Mark differentiates the healing of disease and sickness from the casting out of demons. He clearly has two categories in mind. One are sicknesses with natural causes and demon possession uh, that has a, a spiritual cause. We see that here in the next few verses. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or, or oppressed by demons. All who were sick, category A, or oppressed by demons, category B. Why sundown? Well, because it was the Sabbath, and it, you had to wait until the sun set on the Sabbath to get about your work again. And so you can imagine people were waiting for that sun to go down so they could bring the sick and the demon-possessed to, to Jesus to be healed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, category A, and cast out many demons, category B. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now some say, oh, demon possession is just primitive man's explanation for what they did not understand, but we are modern people and we understand uh, everything has a natural cause. Well, that is not an adequate explanation for the biblical worldview, which 
teaches that there are fallen angels, Satan and demons are fallen angels, who have a personality and a will. And at the time of Christ, there seem to have been quite a few people possessed by demons in the land of Israel. And I'm not one of those people who sees a demon behind every bush. Uh, the Bible teaches that there are three sources of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So yes, the devil is a source, and sometimes that's what you're dealing with. But it can also be the flesh, my own sin nature, my own proclivity toward evil. Uh, that could be in my selfishness and independence from God. That could be the source of the evil. Or it could be the world, and that's the world system. So uh, sometimes the famines in the land or the in, uh, economic insecurity is due to us poorly managing the resources God has given us. Uh, the reason there is so much sexual temptation is because we live in a world system in which we have uh, access to pornography at our fingertips, etc. Okay? Now, at the, on the other hand, we do not want to bury our heads in the sand and uh, say, oh, there's no spiritual, you know, there's no demonic realm. That would uh, never intersect my life. Well, the Bible tells us, uh, resist the devil and he'll free from, flee from you. Put on the full armor of God so that when the uh, devil attacks, you're prepared. The, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So there is a demonic world that interacts our lives, and we need to be uh, prepared, eyes open, and uh, respond accordingly. But one thing that I want to caution against, because I've, I've encountered this uh, with people, <clears throat> they, sometimes people will avoid personal responsibility for their own sin by just chalking it up to a demon. And, and they, they would rather just get, I want the demon of gambling kicked out of, exercised out of my life, or the demon of lust, or the demon of, uh, of drug addiction. Maybe, maybe that's a part of it, but often, very often, what needs to happen is that we need to walk by faith, we need to have willpower, we need to engage uh, the body of Christ and our accountability around us, and it's it's a much more l laborious process than just you know go get an exorcism. Verse thirty-five, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, so now it's the next day, he departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. The Son of God, who has all authority and power still had a desire for and a need for to connect with the Father through prayer. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or how great the heights of spirituality you have attained, you need to pray. You need a regular prayer life where you bring your life before the Lord and you invite Him into it and you confess your sins and you tell Him what your needs are and you ask for wisdom, and you do life in relationship with God through prayer. Verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Who's looking for Jesus? Everyone. Yes, that's right. And I'm sure especially those people who are sick and demon-possessed. You know, 
the word keeps spreading out and people start heading to Capernaum and some, some of them got there in the, during the night or early in the morning and they're, they're wanting Jesus to come heal them and cast out the demons. And I would expect that Jesus would say, okay, people are looking for me, people have needs, let me go uh, meet their needs. So 38 surprises me, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus didn't head back to Capernaum to uh, heal all those people. He actually left. Why? Now, when Jesus encountered a, a person who was ill, he would heal him. When he encountered somebody with a demon, he would cast out the demon. But Jesus said, my primary mission is to preach the gospel of the kingdom. My primary mission is to call people to repent and believe in me. Now, why? Because Jesus understood the preaching of the gospel to be the true solution to the world's problems. I heal somebody with a a sickness, that's great for a time. I cast out a demon, that's great. But if someone repents of his sins and puts his faith in Jesus Christ and enters the kingdom of God, that solves their problems for eternity. That solves their problems for eternity. So, you're here for a reason. People come to church for a reason. Sometimes what gets somebody to come to church is they say, you know what, my marriage is in crisis and I need God to heal my marriage. My kids are just out of control and I need God to work in their lives. I'm physically sick and I need God's healing. And many reasons that can trigger people or inspire people to come to church. And that's, that's great. And the Lord in his mercy so often meets us right there at our point of need. But I'll tell you what, you're, what's going to provide eternal healing, complete healing, is for you to become a Christian to enter the kingdom of God. Because when you enter the kingdom of God, then you benefit from the rule of God in your life for all eternity. And in the short run, yeah, there can still be sickness and uh, and other broken things. But when Christ returns and the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, all the bad stuff is gone out of our lives forever. No more tears, no more sickness, no more dying, no more relationship, conflict, nothing. And so if you're here and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you've never repented of your sins and believed the good news and entered the kingdom of God, that's where you need to start. That's where you need to start. Then you, then you have a personal relationship with God. He, he calls you your, his son, his daughter. You're dwelt with his Holy Spirit. Of course, he's going to listen to his, your prayers. And, and so often he brings healing, but he certainly brings his presence in everything. I want to leave with this question. How, how well are you respecting the authority of Christ in your life? So this story is all about Jesus' authority. Of course, Jesus said right before he went back up to uh, heaven, he said, all authority has been given to me, both in this world and in the heavenlies. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Are we respecting the authority of Christ? So, a few more questions, uh, uh, kind of sub-questions. Ask these of yourselves. Have I asked Jesus to sit on the throne of my life? 
One way to respect Jesus' authority is get off the throne of your life and invite Jesus to take it. Number two, am I obeying his commands? Even when they don't make sense to me, or even when they conflict with my fleshly desires. Number three, am I confessing Jesus as Lord to other people? If we believe in our heart, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. Number four, am I intentionally studying the teachings of Jesus so that I can know what he wants from me? Am I asking the one who has all authority to help me? Am I bringing my life before him continually? Am I seeking his wisdom?